Those are all my announcements. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, it's spelled like the word job, but we pronounce it Job. It's on page 360 in a pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. There's a Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. The brown hardback there. Just pull it out and open it to page 360. You'll find Job chapter 4. 4 is the big number. It's a chapter number. The small numbers are the verse numbers as we go through. That's how we'll be referring to things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Job 4, just 1 through... Let's see. 1 through 6. Or 1 through 7, and then we'll pray. Because we're actually covering Job chapters 4 through chapter 27. So we're doing uh, 24 chapters today. So we're not going to read all 24 right now. We'll just read this section and then jump in. Hear then the words of God. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, Should anyone try to speak with you when you are exhausted? Yet who can keep you from speaking, Job? Indeed, you have instructed many and have strengthened weak hands. Your words have steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. But now that this has happened to you... You have become exhausted or discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Isn't your piety, your confidence, and the integrity of your life, your hope? Consider, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray now that as we think about your word and meditate on your word that your holy spirit would fill us with the word of christ that he would fill us with himself with all the fullness of all that you are that the word of christ would dwell in us richly that we might be singing making melody in our hearts to you lord this is these are not easy days for many and the days of trouble fill our lives as surely as the waters cover the sea and so we pray that you would help us to think to understand, and that you would draw near to us, not just to give us mental understanding, but your comfort. Solidify our faith. Give us foundations for the days of trouble that we are currently in and that we will be in soon. And we pray like all the saints around the world, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Until you come, help us to keep following you faithfully and help us now this morning. Shape our church by your word and save the lost even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're in Job, we continue a heavy discussion on God and suffering and pain and life in this world. So we have this sermon and then three more sermons, I think, in Job. So just four more Sunday sermons of heavy, like, you know, where you got to get up to breathe kind of heavy topics when we think about suffering and life in this world. Now, I can't be sure, but I estimate, I estimate that one, of the, one thing worse then being a child with terminal cancer is being the parent of a child with terminal cancer. One, parently, one parent publicly wrote, one of our church members sent this to me this week, one parent publicly wrote about her daughter with cancer and the constant medical decisions she has to make. And she wrote this, It is upsetting when you're in charge of protecting them and you end up feeling like your judgment can put them in danger. Do I take them back to the hospital? Do I take them home? You know, what do I do with that, with that call? And your judgment, literally their life, hinges on your judgment call. 
And while this particular mother was at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, there was another large family, she said, in the ER that lost an 11-year-old who fought neuroblastoma, which is a type of cancer that children get. No child over 10 almost ever gets it. It could actually happen um, from birth, even. And so um, there's a child who fought for 11 years. I'm not sure if they fought for 11 years, but an 11-year-old child who passed away recently. That's just one of the many kinds of sufferings people in this room fear. That's one of my that's one of my fears as a parent of five. Others of you may fear other things that are not life-threatening, but they could equally be life-shattering. Racism, divorce, abuse or assault, robbery, car accidents, disability, bankruptcy, loss of a job, loneliness, fear of not getting married for those who are single. Or being excluded from a particular community or a group. When our days of pain and suffering and questions come, we can easily become disoriented. Job in this book became disoriented. And that can be us. And that's scary. It's not just scary that you're in the trial on the outside, but then when you lose your sense of direction on the inside, with the trial on the outside, that's when life gets really scary. Now, I can't preach something this morning that will make your suffering or pain vanish. I wish I could, but I can't. I did pray it, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But until that day, can't really do anything else about it. But we can learn from this book how to deal with suffering in such a way that it benefits us so that when we are suffering, we can still, in the end, at the end of the day, we can still taste and see that the Lord is good. Doesn't mean it's easy, but we can still, at the end of the day, taste and see that the Lord is good. So the main idea this morning is fairly general, but it's this. Learn lessons. I'm going to have five lessons here. We'll see if we have time for all five. Learn five lessons to deal with pain in this world from the one who knows all things. As he teaches us through these four people who know only a few things. (laughs) Because we're going to have a discussion here between Job and his friends Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. It's just going to be a conversation back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So we're going to learn... Five lessons from the God who knows all things through these four men who know only some things. And that's important. So let me recap the story before we jump in to these uh, 20, um, 24 chapters or so. In Job chapter 1, we learned uh, three weeks ago now that Job is a righteous man. He's a spiritually mature man. He's a blameless man. That word blameless is also one of the qualifications for pastor, elder, overseers in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So Job was a righteous man. He was a godly guy that you would think would be qualified to be a pastor elder in church. He's mature. He's blameless. He's above reproach. He's so so, um, humble and godly and walking with the Lord that God brags on him to Satan. So Satan's walking in heaven and God brags on him and says, Have you seen my servant Job? And and Satan says, "He He only loves you because you bless him. If you take away his blessings then he'll curse you to your face. He only loves you because you gave him a good wife and you gave him good kids and you gave him a good job and you gave him riches. Take that away and then he'll curse you to your face. So God says, go ahead and do it then. You're on. So just don't touch, us, don't, just don't touch him. So Satan takes all of his money through robbers. Satan kills most of his servants who are also the robbers. Satan, so he takes his money, takes his servants and, and many of his friends who are his employees And then he takes his ten children. Satan kills the ten children with a natural disaster. House collapses on them. 
and they all die. And Job finds out all of this in one day. And the way the story reads, in one five-minute episode. Job does not curse God. He gets on his face and he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships God and praises God. And so Satan comes back to heaven, walks around, and God brags on Job again. Look, you did this. He was supposed to curse me, but he didn't. You were wrong. And Satan says, skin for skin. Touch his body, then he'll curse you to your face. Okay, fine. Go ahead and take his, touch his body. Just don't kill him. You can get him sick. You can do whatever. Just don't kill him. Okay? Satan goes and leaves. He touches Job's body. Job gets sick, boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, can't get comfortable in any position, loses weight, and all of the internal trials that come with the external trials are, are attacking Job. And Job's wife, even, his best friend, his, his, uh, his helpmeet, you know, his rib, his, his, the delight of his eyes comes and says to him, get satanically motivated here. Not maybe consciously, but becomes an instrument of Satan. And she says, curse God and die. Probably otherwise a godly woman, but in this moment, captured by Satan to do his will. Well, Job does not bite the bait. He does not give in to the temptation. He says, you speak like one of the foolish women. Should we accept good from God and not adversity or not evil? And the author says, Job didn't sin with his lips. Then we looked at Job 3. So, so then his friends come. And this is what we're going to talk about today. His three friends come. When the three friends come, they're there for seven days and they sit in silence just to comfort him. They cry with him. And then after seven days, Job opens his mouth. We spent time on this last week. And Job said, I have three wishes. One, I wish I was never born. Two, because I was born, I wish I died when I was born. And three, since I didn't die when I was born and I'm alive right now, I wish I was dead right now. That was Job's three wishes. If I could have three wishes, those are my three wishes. And he was depressed and he was in despair. We talked about that last week. I was crying out in despair. And now the friends speak. And so for the next 24 chapters, from Job chapter 4 to chapter 27, Job, Job spoke, now Eliphaz speaks. Job speaks back. Then Bildad speaks. Then Job speaks back. And then Zophar speaks. And then Job speaks back. That's round one, and then they do it again. Round two, and then round three. There's three rounds of going back and forth and back and forth. So for the next less than a minute a chapter, we're going to look at what was said. Okay, we're going to look at it. So we're going to trace the conversation for the next 20, 25 minutes right now. And then after that, we'll pull out five lessons from it. Okay, that's where we're going. So let's think about, oh, let me give you the main idea, or a main way of talking about the five lessons. I came up with a little rhyme, so I'll share it with you. Maybe it'll help you remember things. It says this. So I think here's the main lesson, what we'll learn from all of these lessons in this story. When in pain, don't trust your brain, but trust his aim and the few things he's made plain. Okay, so when in pain, don't trust your brain, but trust his aim and the few things he's made plain. Okay, let's look at that. Chapter 4. So here we go. We start running through this book now. In chapter 4, look at verses 7 and 8. Here's Eliphaz, and he says this, one of Job's best friends. Consider, Job, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. So you know who gets in trouble, Job? Those who plow injustice and those who are guilty and not innocent. So you're suffering, Job. Therefore, you are probably what? Guilty and unjust. That's what he's insinuating here. In chapter 12 through 16, I mean, verses 12 through 16, Job, or look, look at verse 12. He says, 
How does, how does Eliphaz know this? A word was brought to me in secret. My ears caught a whisper of it. Among the unsettling thoughts from visions in the night when deep sleep descends on men. So how does Eliphaz know that only wicked people suffer? He, he learned it in a what? In a dream. In a vision. And in verse 17, he says, no one is pure before God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Job, clearly you sinned in this case. And that is why you are suffering. And how do I know? Because I had a vision. So um, this is, again, why we don't trust visions ultimately for our life. Not to say it can't happen ever, but you always have to test everything by what? We test everything by what? The The word of God, the Bible. Vision, statements, whatever anyone says, we always test everything. Everything, everything from the Bible. And so that's Eliphaz. He has no category for innocent suffering. You're suffering, Job, you must be guilty. Let's go to chapter 5 now. Eliphaz continues, and he says, basically saying this, fools get punished, so appeal to God because he heals and helps, Job. And only fools will get punished. In chapter 2, look at verses 2 and 3. Anger, anger kills a fool, and jealousy slays the gullible. I have seen a fool taking root, but immediately, but I immediately pronounced a curse on his home. Job, you must be a fool, because you're suffering, and only fools suffer. Look at verse 8. Here's his solution. However, if I were you, Job, here's what I would do. I would appeal to God and present my case to him. And verse 17 says, see how happy the man is, God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the mighty, of the Almighty. In other words, guess what God has to do to Job? He has to what? Correct him and discipline him because Job has done something wrong. That's the assumption. Now, we know chapter 1. Did Job do anything wrong? Is that what caused this? No, it's a Satan and God deal, right? But Eliphaz thinks, Job, you must have done something wrong, man. You just let God correct you. Be humble. But, um, and how does Eliphaz know this? Verse 27. When, when we have what? What have they done? We've searched this. We've investigated this, and it's true. It's like what we hear today. Studies have shown. You ever heard that before? Studies have shown, and they go off on what they have shown, and that's why we know what is going on. Well, you'd be foolish to just trust the studies and the investigation if you don't test it by what God has actually said. So whether it's a dream and vision as your authority, or what studies have shown that cannot be your ultimate authority. Now, there is, there is truth. Doesn't God punish the wicked? Yeah. Don't people reap what they sow? Yeah. Yes. So there's a part of truth here, but there's something also er- erroneous here. Eliphaz thinks God, uh, Job deserves God's chastening, and that that's why he's suffering. He doesn't know chapter 1. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You must be proud, Job. That's why he's opposing you. That's the logic there. So here's one of our lessons, just a short lesson here. A false or improper impl- imp- a false or improper application of genuine truth can be heartless and cruel. And actually, you could actually say you could say biblical things that are false things about God. Not because the Bible's false, but because you've misapplied it. Just because you're biblical and theological and you know the word doesn't mean you're right in that situation. Eliphaz is wrong. He quotes scripture on that. God punishes the wicked. You must be wicked. Wrong. That's not, that's not it. That's wrong logic there. Okay, chapter 6 now. Next one. So here's what Job says in response. God did this to me. I want to die. And you guys, and I was talking to all three, and only one has spoken, but he says, all of you are traitors. You're all treacherous friends to me. And I'm innocent. 
wow, Job, like, calm down, dude. Like, I didn't say anything yet. Why are you, why are you getting mad at me? That's Eliphaz saying that. Like, chill out a little bit. So here's what Job, like, in, in, in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, Surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's poisoning me. God's terrors are arrayed against me, verse 4 of chapter 6. In, chapter, in verses 8 through 10, he says, Let me die so that I don't deny God. Look at that in, in verse 8. If only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for and that he would crush me and unleash his power and cut me off if he would kill me. I like what he says in verse 10. It would still bring me comfort and I would leap for joy in unrelenting pain that I have not did what? That I did not what? Deny the words of the Holy One. Just kill me before I deny God. Isn't that a great prayer? I don't want to, I don't want to go in the last stages of my life denying God. I'd rather die before God makes me deny, or before I start denying God at the end of my life because of suffering. Just take me, Lord. I'd rather finish faithfully than die unfaithfully. Okay, and so we, we see that there. And then in verses 15 and verse 21, Job says, you guys are all traitors to me. In verse 21. In verse 29 through 30, Job invites criticism. Hey, guys, if I have sin, tell me my sin. But I don't know what sin in my life is. I don't know why God's doing this to me. Go to chapter 7. Job continues. This hurts God. And he asks a question. Everyone asks a three-letter question. Why? Why are you doing this to me, God? In verse 7 of chapter 7, Job's pessimism sets in. Look, he says, remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will never again see anything good. Is that true? For those of you who know the end of the story of Job, will he see good things again? Yes. yes. Job's wrong here. He's speaking in despair. My life is over. Never going to see anything good again. I'm pessimistic. He's just lost all hope in, in a sense. He's still hoping in God. But he's like, for the rest of my life, I'm just going to suffer till the end. That's what it is. As if he knows. Remember, don't trust those who know few things. Don't trust the few things. You know, God, let trust what God made plain. And these men only know a few things here. They don't know the Satan-God deal. In verses 19 through 21, Job calls God out with questions. Why are you doing this to me? Verse 19, will you ever look away from me or leave me alone? Verse 20, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? Watcher of mankind, why have you made me your target? So that I have become a burden to you. Why not just forgive my sin and pardon my transgression? Why? Now Job here comes within a whisker. A whisker of implying that God is not fair. He's not saying it, but he's implying it. But he doesn't say it, and he's not cursing God, so he still keeps his integrity. He still doesn't do what Satan said he would do. But he gets really close. Go to chapter 8. Now Bildad comes in. The other one that Job said was a traitor, even though Bildad hadn't said anything to this point. So Bildad comes in. Fine, you want to call me a traitor? God is just, you sinned, and tradition says so. That's, his, that's, that's Bildad's statement. In verses 3 through 7, look at, this is crazy what Bildad says here. But man, God save us from saying stuff like this. Look at verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. Why did, it, why did your children die, Job? You know why? In verse 4, your children what? Sinned. sinned. They got what they deserved. deserved. Wow. Best friend. Really? Like, you're just going to go that far and... My kids got what they deserve. Again, that's when you, when you don't, when you take your few things you know that are biblically true and you act as if God told you everything which he didn't tell you, you can say a lot of stupid things. That's a stupid thing right there to say. And so, and then his, uh, his authority, verses 8 through 10, ask the previous generation, pay attention to what their fathers discovered. Tradition, 
This is what has been handed down to us. This is what was done before. This is what our fathers taught us. That's how I know this is true, that your children deserve this. Tradition needs to be tested by the Bible. We love traditions. I love traditions. But traditions are not authoritative at the end of the day. They also need to be tested from the Bible. Chapter 9. Job says, God is just. He's not unfair. And doing these things, God is doing these things to me even though I'm blameless. And I can't approach him. That's basically what we say in chapter 10. God's fair. I'm not saying he's unfair. What I'm saying is that I'm innocent and what I'm getting is unfair. And God's the one doing it, but I can't approach him to talk to him, so there's a problem here, and I don't know what to do. That's chapter 10. He wants to talk to God. Verses 2 through 6, he's saying God is so great. His greatness is unsearchable. It's infinite. And he says in verses 15 through 19, God did this without cause. In verses 21 through 23, I think Job gets close to sinning here. Maybe he does sin. Look at chapter 9, verse 21. He says, Though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It's all the same. Therefore I say, He, that's God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Verse 23, When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The King James Version says he laughs. That's, that's the wrong way of thinking about God. That you're suffering and God is laughing at you. Or God is mocking you. That's what Job is saying here. That's how beaten down he is he's like not only am i innocent but god is mocking me i think job is sitting here at this point in saying something like that that god's mocking us and he's making fun of us and he's laughing at my suffering and he wants to talk to god as you finish in job 30 verses 32 35 go to chapter 10 we got to keep hustling here chapter 10 job says i'll speak bitterly and say to god you made you made me and this was your plan all along. Just please let me die. So Job's saying, I'm speaking in bitterness. In verse 8, he questions God. But look at verse 13. I want to pick up on this at the end. Look at verse 13 here. You knew this, God, yet you concealed me, yet you concealed or you hid these thoughts where? In your heart. In your heart. I know that this was your what? Hidden what? Plan. Hidden plan. This was your secret decree. This was your plan for me, God. You never told me this, but this was always your plan for me. And Job just wants to die. Verse, chapter 11. So that's what Job says. I'm innocent. I don't know why God's doing this. I just want to die. God had this plan for me. This is crazy. Chapter 11, Zophar jumps into the conversation. And he's basically saying this. We can barely know God. God is so wise. God is so infinite. He knows so many things. We can barely scratch the surface of what God knows. Isn't that true? Yeah. yeah. So then he says... So um, because of that, you just need to repent. And once you repent, your suffering will end. That's his solution. Verses 7 through 9, God can't be fully known. Now it looks like he's doing really good. You know, we can't know God. That's really good. But then he goes off track in verses 10 through 12. Look at 10 through 12. So we could barely know what God's doing, verses 7 through 9. He's so wise, so infinite. But if he passes by and throws some in prison and convenes a court who can stop him, surely he knows which people are worthless. If he sees iniquity, will he not take note of it? But a stupid man will gain understanding as soon as a wild donkey is born a man. So a stupid man will never get it, is what he's saying. So here's what he's saying, basically. He's saying, God knows everything. We could barely scratch the surface. So guess, if, guess what? If God knows everything, guess what else he knows? That you, Job, have what? sinned so he takes the truth that we can't barely know what god says and he misapplies it so god knows you sin job and you're a stupid man who'll never get it 
crazy. But if you repent, verses 13 through 18, your suffering will go away. If you re, verse 13 says, if you redirect your heart, if you live, lift up your hands in prayer, if there's any iniquity in your hand, remove it, just repent, then you will be held high. Then you'll be, then suffering will go away. Then Job says in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, I'm not stupid. So he basically says in verse 2, no doubt, like, I love the sarcasm here. This is just real life, right? Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. No doubt, you three, you are the people, and wisdom will what? Die with you. You're the only three wise people in the whole world. And if you three die, there'll be no wisdom left on the earth. Verse 3, but I also have a mind. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know the things you guys are talking about? Of course God knows everything. Of course we can't know it all. But I'm innocent. I agree with you on that first part. That second part, I disagree with you. I'm innocent. I'm not stupid. God did this. And I'm scared of God because God is so great and so mighty. That's what he's saying at the very end. He says, God, I wanted to read. You could read this for um, homework if you want, just as you're thinking about the elections. Job chapter 12, verses 23 to 25. He talks about nations rising and nations falling and world leaders becoming um, wanderers and stuff. So you could read that later. Okay. Chapter 13. Then we move on to chapter 13, and Job says in verse 1 of chapter 13, Look, my eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard it and understood it. Everything you know, I also know I'm not inferior to you, yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before Him. Look at verse 5. If only you would do what? If only you three would what? Shut up. It says in my translation, shut up or be silent. If only you three would be quiet and let that be your wisdom. Let your quietness be your wisdom. Every time you speak, you say something foolish. They're just fighting with each other as he's suffering. Verses 13 through 15, Job says, I'll risk all of it to talk to God, even if he kills me. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Be quiet and I will speak. Let whatever comes happen to me. Why do I put myself at risk and take my life in my own hands? I love verse 15. Even if he what? Even if he slays me, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. I'm just going to be honest. If I think I'm innocent, I'm going to say I'm innocent. I could be wrong. God could even kill me and judge me. And even if he kills me and judges me, I will still hope in him. Who's losing? Satan or God? Satan. Even if he kills me, I'm going to hope in him. I will not curse him. He's real. He really trusts God. He fears God. He loves God. He just doesn't get why he's going through what he's going through. And I know you can relate to that. He says, God, let me approach you, please. Can we have a conversation, please, God? Chapter 14, Job says, if only he would take my life and cover my sins. But instead, God, all you're doing is destroying me. That's chapter 14. So that's round one. Get a feel for the discussion. Get a feel for who's saying what. Let's go to round two, okay? Round two, chapter 15. Then Eliphaz comes back. Round two for Eliphaz. And he says, look at verse, verses four through six of chapter 15. But you even undermine the fear of God, Job, and hinder, the med- hinder meditation, med- meditation before him. Job, you're under- you don't fear God, Job. And verse 5, Job, your iniquity teaches you what to say, and you choose the language of the crafty. In other words, what Job's, is Job saying sinful things or righteous things, according to Eliphaz? Sinful things. And where's it coming from? A heart of what? A heart of sin. You're just being crafty and you're being theologically nuanced and this and that, but you really have a sinful heart. You're just manipulating your words. 
for your ends. Verse 6, your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Job, just listen to what you're saying. You're sinning. That's why you're suffering. Simple. Listen to your words. And so he questions Job's wisdom. And then in verse 10 of that chapter, where's his authority? Both the gray-haired and the elderly are with us, men older than your father. How do I know that I'm right and you're wrong, Job? We got people older than your dad telling you you're wrong. So if you're elderly, according to this argument, then you have to be right. We have to be right because we got the elderly on our side and not you, Job. Job's going to say later, I'm old too. That's some wisdom myself. That, that's his point there. And, and his point in 15, the wicked suffer all the time. And then look at verses 27 and 29. This is cutting for Job. Verses 27 and 29. Though his face is covered with that. Talking about wicked people. So the, the, the face of wicked people are covered with fat because they're prospering. And his waistline bulges with it. He's getting fat because he's, he's eating so much and he's enjoying life. Verse 28, he will dwell, even though he does that, he will dwell eventually in ruined cities and abandoned houses destined to become piles of rubble. He will no longer be rich eventually. His wealth will not endure. His possessions will not increase in the land. Yes, the wicked might prosper for a month, two months, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, even 40 years, but eventually God will get the wicked. And you're saying amen because it's right. But here's what he's saying. And guess what, Job? You know why you know why you're getting got now? Because you are one of the wicked. You were prospering, you were a wise man, you were rich, you had all that. But just like God gets every one of those wicked guys and eventually it comes back to get them, he's come back to get you. Is that right or wrong? I mean, is that true? Is that why God's doing this? No, we know Job chapter one is because of Satan and God. Again, you could take a biblical truth, you reap what you sow and misapply it. And actually speak false things about God. And Eliphaz falls into that trap here. He's right, but his timing is off. God will make it right, but not always in this life. Chapter 16. So Job responds, God is pursuing me even though I'm innocent. I wish I could have a lawyer, an advocate. If I could just have an advocate, maybe a go-between. Okay, God's not going to talk to me. Send an angel, someone to talk between me and God so that we could at least relay messages to each other. And God could know that maybe he forgot me because there's, at least today, 7 billion people in the world. Maybe God forgot about me. If I could just get a, an advocate, maybe someone to speak up for me so that God could hear me. I know he's kind of busy perhaps, but if he could hear me, then maybe I could get through and then he could realize, oh, I made a mistake and, and, and fix this. Job says in verses 4 and 5 to his friends, if you guys were suffering and I wasn't, I wouldn't do what you guys are doing. I wouldn't be accusing you guys. I would just be encouraging you. Look at verse 11 of chapter 16. Job is, speaks better than he knows when he says, God hands me over to who? The ungodly. And did, did God hand Job over to the ungodly? Yeah. yeah. They, killed his, they killed his servants. They took his wealth. And he handed them over to Satan, the most ungodly of all. Job's right. God, you handed me over to the ungodly, and I'm innocent, and I don't get it. Can I have someone talk to, between us? Can I get an advocate here, please? Chapter 17, he talks to his friends. You guys are all fools. Death is my only hope. Chapter 18, Bildad comes back. And look at verses, verse 2, chapter 18. How long until you what? Stop talking. When, Job, 
When will you shut up? These are the friends trying to comfort Job, right? When will you shut up, Job? Verse 3, why are we regarded as cattle and stupid in your sight? Why are you calling us stupid? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account or a rock be removed from its place? Does the world revolve around you, Job? Are you really the greatest in the world that, that all of the earth should revolve around you? You are so selfish, Job. You're so self-centered. Wow. That's, that's, that's Bildad's message. Shut up, Job. Get off your high horse. The world doesn't revolve around you. The wicked and the unjust suffer punishment, and you are suffering because of it. Chapter 19, Job responds. Why do you attack me? I'm repulsive. My wife doesn't even want to be around me. Look at chapter, in verses 13, 14, 17, and 19. My children are running away from me. Verse 19 says that. No survivor wants to be around me. Darkness is gone from me. No one remembers the good I've done. And then he pleads with his friends in verses 21. In verse 21. I'm sorry. In verse 20, no, 21, he just closes his statement. This is not right. And I don't know why, but I'm suffering here. Job pleads with his friends. Or he does plead with his friends on verse 21 and 22. Have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy, for God's hand has struck me. I'm suffering here, guys. Can you just be merciful to me for a second? Why does God persecute me? And that's what gets them mad. He's like, why does God persecute me? And they're like, well, I can't be quiet because you're saying God is persecuting me. And he's not. It's because of your sin. We love you. We just want you to get it. Look at verses 25 to 27. Actually, no, we'll cover that later. We'll cover that in lessons. Let's move on. Chapter 20. Zophar responds to Job with a very simple message. God always makes the wicked suffer. That's verses 4 through 7. Look at 4. Don't you know, ever since antiquity, from the time man was placed on earth, the joy of the wicked has been what? Short or brief, and the happiness of the godless has lasted only for a moment. Though his arrogance reaches heaven and his head touches the clouds, he will vanish forever like his own dung. Those who know him will ask, where is he? The wicked are going to get theirs. Verses 27 to 29 of this chapter. The heavens will expose his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. They will, they will be punished on God's day of anger. Verse 29, this is the wicked man's lot from God. The inheritance God ordained from God punishes the wicked. The wicked never get away. Job, you are suffering because you are well. Job, you put one and one together. You know why you're suffering. Chapter 21, Job responds. The wicked prosper in this world, so you can't be right. That's Look at verse 7. Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? Verse 30. Indeed, the evil man is spared from the day of disaster and rescued from the day of wrath. Verse 34. How can you offer me such feel comfort? Your answers are deceptive. Wicked people don't suffer in this life all the time. I looked up on Google the, tw- uh, the most wicked evil people. And man, those stories are just heart-wrenching. I- I'm, for the sake of time, I can't... Have you, have you heard of Joseph Mengel? Oh, yeah. You know? I, I didn't hear my ignorance on history, but... Mengele? Mengele. Okay. Joseph Mengele. The angel of death. And the experiments he did on... Um, on twins in Auschwitz, Nazi Germany. It's horrific what he did. And then at the end, he escaped and he never got caught. And he died in Brazil swimming. 
Never got caught. How can you say God gets the wicked? I mean, this guy did crazy, wicked, evil things. Experiments on twins, sewing them together and killing them and being and just horrific evils. When you read it, it's just you almost want to throw up reading it. And God didn't get him. He was swimming at a beach when he died. In old age. So Job is saying, how can you tell me that God, I'm suffering because I'm wicked? Because other people get away without getting being wicked. I mean, without, without suffering. Other wicked people get away without suffering. So your counsel is useless to me, guys. Stop saying I'm wicked. I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. I'm not saying I'm sinless, but I didn't do anything to deserve this. This is not why I have this trial. Chapter 22. Here's our response. Then Eliphaz the Temanite says, basically, God destroys the wicked, so receive. God destroys the wicked, and so here's the solution, verses 25 to 20, 21 and 25. Look at verse 21 of chapter 22. Come to terms with God, Job, and be at peace. In this way, good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth. You need to learn, Job. Verse 23, if you what? Return. You got to repent, Job. Come back. Come back to God. If you do that, then you'll be blessed and you won't be punished anymore. You see, the, 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 the advice is the same, right? Just, just repent, Job. That's why you're in this, because you sinned. You're guilty. Job responds in verse tw- chapter 23, If only I could talk to God. But not only is God seemingly unfair, now he goes to a different point. God is inaccessible. God's hiding from me. It's not just that God is so great and not that God seems to be unfair. But God is inaccessible. He's hiding from me. You ever feel that way when you're suffering? That God is hiding from you? He's distant from you? Verses 3 through 7 says, If I could just talk to him, he'd understand this was a mistake, but I can't even find him. Verses 13 through 16 says, You know what? God decreed this, and I can't stop him. This is scary stuff. In Job chapter, in chapter 24, Job says, The wicked are evil, and they're often prosperous. And they will pay in the end. I mean, even Joseph Mengele will pay. I mean, is paying right now. Right? If he isn't saved, he's, he's paying in hell right now. And he's being crushed by God perfectly, exhaustively, justly, and righteously for every single sin he's ever committed. That's true. That happens. But Job's point is it doesn't always happen in this life. So don't say that I'm wicked. God will make it right in the end. Like in the end end. Not the end of this life, earthly life, 80 years. But in the end, end, he'll make it right. So then he's just saying, why does God wait to make it right? Why can't he make it right now? Why can't I get a resurrection body now? Why can't God save us now and Jesus come now and the, 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 those who reject Christ be punished now? Why can't God just end it all now? Why is God waiting? That's his question in chapter 24. In chapter 25, Bildad responds, Job, God is so transcendent in authority. And everyone's a sinner. Isn't that right, though? Look at Job 25, verse 4. This is Bildad. 25, verse 4 says, How can a person be justified before God? How can a person stand declared righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? In other words, all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one can stand right before God. Job, stop saying you're innocent. I know you're not saying you're sinless, but you're practically saying you're sinless. Stop it. We are all sinners before God. 
And if we're all sinners before God, we all deserve death. So don't say you don't deserve this. We all deserve worse than this. I've said that before, logically. That's wrong here. That's a wrong application of that truth. All fall short. No one is righteous before God. Chapter 26. So here's, here's, now we're at the end, okay? Last two chapters. Last two chapters. I see somebody getting tired and you're supposed to get tired. This is actually supposed to wear you out as you read it. Chapter 26. Job says, God is so great that no one can fully understand him. And look at, in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 26, he says, again, here's Job's sarcasm. 26 verse 2. How you have helped the powerless and delivered the arm that is weak. You guys are so helpful. How have you have counseled the unwise and thoroughly explained the path to success? Thank you, guys. I owe you guys money. You guys, this is the best seminar on how to handle suffering that I've ever had before. You guys are the best. You guys should make this a business. That's Job's sarcasm coming through. Verse 14, Job says, These are but the fringes of his ways. We barely know the fringes of what God is doing. How faint is the word we hear of him. Who can understand his mighty thunder? God has so many secrets that we don't even know about. And he's right. The Satan-God deal is a secret. It's not known to them. Look at verse 20, chapter 27. So here's Job's the ending for today, at least. We'll pick up. Job is going to say more in, in the next weeks, but... Last one for today. Job says, I don't deserve this in chapter 27. God ultimately judges the wicked. And in the end, the righteous will win. The wicked will lose. So that's why I'm confused as w- at what's going on right now. Because I trust him. I don't trust in myself. And yet I'm suffering. And I don't know why this is right to God. But somehow it has to be right. But at the same time, this can't be right because I'm suffering. And I'm innocent. So Job is bitter, but he says... I'm innocent, verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. My lips will not speak unjustly, and my tongue will not utter deceit. I will never affirm that you are right, that you guys are right, you three. I will maintain my integrity until I die. I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. I will keep a clear conscience. I will not say I'm sinning if I don't know that I've sinned. I'm not saying that I haven't sinned. I'm saying, God, show me, or you guys show me. But if you're not showing me where I'm sinning and you're saying, you must have some sin somewhere there, that's why you're suffering. If that's what you guys are going to say, I'm not going to say I'm sinning. Point to a specific sin that I'm sinning in as to why I deserve this. Not, Not that I didn't sin in this conversation, but point to the sin that brought this on. Then I'll listen to you guys. But I cannot violate my conscience. It's clear. There's no, I'm not hiding any sin. I'm not hiding from anyone. My, my heart is an open book. And there's nothing I can see that's wrong. So I'm not going to bow down to what you guys are forcing me to do and just say I'm sinning just, just to get this over with. That's not right. Okay. So you, you get their points, right? Basically, their three, the three of them are saying, you're suffering. Why? Because you what? Because you sinned and then you brought it on. Job's point is what? I'm what? I'm innocent, and God is still fair, but this situation is unfair. You get it? That, that's just the back and forth between them. Now, we're going to have two more, well, one more wearying kind of sermon like this when we go to the rest of Job, when Eliphaz jumps in, and then God. It's going to be a great ending to this. But let's draw five lessons briefly here as we close. Number one, and you probably picked up some lessons along the way. Let's say these briefly. Number one. Find ways from the Bible to express your grief properly. There's a proper way to express grief without sinning, and there's an improper way. 
Learn from Job. Learn from the Psalms. Don't worry about getting technical with what lament is. Just be honest with God because he already what? He already knows it. So if you're hurt, tell him. If you're bitter, say it to him. If you feel like he's hiding, ask him. You're already thinking it, and he's aware of your thoughts anyway. Say it out loud. Say it to him. Don't distort the facts. Don't admit you're sinning when you don't think you're sinning either. Keep a clear conscience. The way you keep a clear conscience is you're constantly repenting and confessing sin. Let me just ask some of you, brother, or all of you, brothers and sisters, when was the last time you spent five minutes examining your heart to confess sin? What Jose did here was fine, but I'd, I'd ask you to do something even more than that. Don't say, God, if I sinned. Don't just say that. It's perfectly fine to say that. But don't just say, if we sin, forgive us. Name specific sins. Don't just say if. That's, there's no conviction, or rarely is there conviction when you say, if I sin, God, forgive me. Be specific. Examine your heart and confess your sins to God. Keep a clear conscience. And then hope in God. In chapter, Go back to chapter 13. I'm just going to pull out some verses here as we, as we think about these. Chapter 13, verse 13. Or chapter 13, verse 15, I'm sorry. He says this, even if he kills me, yet I will what? Trust him, or I will still what? Hope in him. So when you are finding ways to grieve, hope in God, even when you don't get it. You know what atheists and agnostics do with suffering? They say this proves that God does not exist or care. God doesn't care. He doesn't exist. But for Job, that's not what he gets from it. He gets, what he gets from that is, this is a mystery, and I know God cares, and I know God is just. I just don't get it, but I'm going to keep asking him, and I'm still going to hope in him. He's not going atheistic or agnostic. If you're not a Christian, you might think, this is why I can't be a Christian. You're telling me to hope in a God who's in control and lets me suffer? And that's part of his aim? You said that was part of his aim, part of his plan? And you want me to trust in that God? I can't trust in that God. He doesn't exist. If that's your problem, let me say two things to you. Number one, suffering isn't senseless. God has a reason for it, even if we don't know it. I know that might not be good enough for us. But if God is so big and in control that you could be mad at him, then he's so big and so wise that he can have a good reason, even though you don't understand why it's good. And if that's true, then we can say there's meaning to this. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I know there has to be some good reason for it. And I'll just trust him. The second thing is that we know, even though we don't know the reasons why we're going through suffering we're going through, we know that God cares because he sent his son Jesus into the world to suffer for us, right? So God is not indifferent. He might be mysterious and hiding his reasons, but he's not careless or indifferent. He cares so deeply he sent his son to die for us and take us with him. That's the first thing. So suffer well, hoping in God. Number two, brothers and sisters, realize that there is innocent suffering in the world. There's a place for innocent suffering. Don't theologize too quickly or dogmatically when you counsel others. In Job 42, verse 7, God makes it very clear. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were wrong. Job was right. Not that Job didn't sit in this conversation, but Job 42, 7 is very clear. Job was right. You guys were wrong. He was innocent. I didn't punish him because of a sin. He shouldn't have been confessing sins that you thought he did. He was innocent. You were wrong and you need to repent for saying that and speaking falsely about me to my servant Job. That's what God tells them in the end. Job 42 verse 7. At one level, they were right on some theology. They just were short-sighted in the way they applied it. Their timing was off. 
They thought they knew more about what God did. They thought everything in the Bible is everything God said. But what does Deuteronomy 29, 29 say? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and our children. What God says, we live by. But this is not by, this is sufficient for everything we need for our lives. But this is not everything God knows. This is so small to what God knows and his purposes, right? And so we don't know all the rest. We just trust him in it. And we don't use the Bible to bash other people who are suffering as if this is everything. This is everything we need, but it's not everything God knows or purposes. And therefore, when people are suffering, there's a category in our minds for innocent suffering. We can't just go to James 5.13. Some of our members are sick this morning, and I prayed for, well, one of them who's normally here was sick this morning. And I prayed for him, and I prayed, God, if he has sin in his heart, please help him confess it. And then heal him. And if there is no sin, then heal him. Why do I get that? That's James 5.13. He says, if any, is anyone among you suffering or sick? Let him, uh, it says here, let the prayer, or let him call for the elders of the church and they will pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. What is James saying? Sometimes when you get sick, it's because of what? Sin. Notice I said, did I say all the time? What did I say? Sometimes. Sometimes. Not every time. So when you're sick, if, when I visit you in the hospital, please don't think I'm thinking you sinned. I, that's not what I'm thinking. I, there's a, I, I know Job. There's a place for innocent. Is it possible that you did sin? Yes. Am I going to say I could read your heart? No, I'm not going to say that. But that's the problem is we could take James 5, 13 and 16 and not say sometimes. We'll take that verse and say all the time you're sick. It's because of sin. That's wrong. Sometimes is right. All the time is wrong. And when you start saying all the time, you start counseling people like that, you'll be a miserable friend. And you better just shut your mouth and not show up. Because you're just going to hurt people. And that's what they did. So have a category for innocent suffering. I want to say to our church family here, FSBC, we need to love and actively support those who are suffering when we don't understand. So when you go to the hospital, you know, I visited Carrie yesterday. And I knew, I I told... Chris, when we went to visit him yesterday, I said, I'm going to tell Kerry, because I know he told me not to preach Job. Kerry's been telling me not to preach Job. He said, don't preach Job, because when you do, things happen. <laughs> things happen. And I told Chris on the way up the, the elevator, I was like, man, I'm going to tell him, like, I'm so sorry for preaching Job, because, you know, for the, you know, there's just different things going on, and um, life-threatening things. And so when I got up there, he, he remembered. He's like, I told you not to preach Job. <laughs> sorry, brother. I'm sorry, but I won't say that I can read what God's doing here. I'm just going to be here. We're going to pray together. We love you, caring for you. And um, let's support each other lovingly, prayerfully, actively, and not try to solve everything. We don't, we don't know. We just, we just know that God is good and Christ's death is sufficient and that God will make it right in the end, even though it's hard now. That's the second lesson, okay? So have a place for innocent suffering in your mind. Third lesson is finish strong. Job wanted to finish strong. Remember he said, God, kill me before I, before I curse you. I want to die faithfully. I don't know if you know the story. You can look at this later. Second Kings 20, the story of Hezekiah. He was on his deathbed. And he turns over on his deathbed. Uh, the prophet says he's going to die. So he turns over on his bed to the wall. And he says, God, remember all the good things. And Hezekiah was a great king, a godly king. He, he turns to the wall and says, God, remember all the things I did for you and extend my life. And Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings. God extended his life for 15 years. The prophet came back, you're going to live 15 more years. Imagine knowing when you're going to die, what year you're going to die. 
It's kind of a gift in some ways, you know, if you knew. It's a curse, but it's a gift in the same way, like to know exactly what year you're going to die. Fifteen years you'll die. Those 15 years were the worst years of Hezekiah's life. He did the most damage to God's people. He led God's people back to the word and to the Lord. But in those 15 years, he showed everything to the, to the Babylonians, and that became out of pride, and that became God's judgment on Judah. And he hurt God's people in those 15 years. It would have been better for him to die on that bed than do that. And so the lesson here is finish strong, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying it's easy, but finish your life strong. Whether you're dying at 30 or 50 or 80 or 90 or in your hundreds, finish strong. That doesn't mean you have all the answers, but you just cling to him and say, God, I'd rather die than belittle you and dishonor you on my deathbed or, or with the rest of my life. And I just want to say again as an application to our church family, we need to help each other finish strong. When you are in the hospital or when you're sick, you have all kinds of thoughts rattling around your head that are satanic. And it's not because of you necessarily. The, the, the Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? Devour, right? So you're going to get thoughts in your head that are just dead wrong about God, about people, about his love. And what you need is God's word, the sword of the spirit. And so as church family, we go to each other, we visit each other, and we gospelize each other. We read Bible verses to each other. That's, this, is a, this is a spiritual warfare, and a lot of it is mental. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. And so we use the word and we visit each other, whether in the hospital or even here after the service. And we speak God's word to each other because all week we've been hearing lies and we've been reinforcing them in our mind. And the only thing that will break it by the power of the spirit is the word of God. Amen. And you don't do that just by yourself. That's why we have a church family. You miss gathering with the church and gospelizing each other for weeks on end. And you let those thoughts rattle in your head. You will become a puppet in the hand of Satan. That's what 2 Timothy 2 says, 24, 26. You believe enough lies, you'll start believing them and applying it to people. Speak God's word to each other. That's number three. Number four, I have five. So number four is prepare to suffer by trusting God now. And what I mean by that is don't hold, well, let me change it. Number four would be this. Don't hold on to earthly things too tightly. I have one verse for this. Look at verse, chapter 23, verses 13 to 16. Well, two verses, 23, and then, so we'll go to chapter 23 and chapter 6. This is an important point, then we'll close with the gospel. 23, 13 says this. God is unchangeable. Who can oppose him? He does what he desires. Who can stop God? No one, right? Verse 14, he will certainly accomplish what he has decreed for me, and he has many more things like these in his mind. God can do whatever he wants, and guess what? He's doing this stuff to me. So what's your reaction to that? Verse 15, what's Joe's reaction? Therefore, I am what? Wouldn't that be scary for you? If God could do whatever he wants to you, and he puts you through an earthly hell, isn't that scary? I'd be scared. Job is scared. And no one can stop God. So then God almost looks like the monster, right? He almost looks like the monster. And that's what the friends are actually struggling with. So look at this. Go back to Job 6. This is important. Job 6. Job 6.15. says this. He says, my brothers are treacherous. He's saying that his friends here are treacherous like a wadi. And then go to verse 21. He's talking about his friends here. So this is what you have become to me now, or you become to me nothing. When you see something dreadful, you are what? Afraid. This is what they're doing. Now get this. Everyone look up here because this is what happens to us all the time. 
They see Job suffering. It's dreadful and it's scary. So not only is it scary for Job, it's scary for who? For them. So they have to find a way to explain it so that they can find a way to avoid it. Isn't that what happens when you, get, when you hear about tragedies? You want to know what's the solution. Wait, what happened? Okay, so what can I do to solve it? Because if I can find a way to solve it, it will never happen to me. Right? That's what we do. We just start finding solutions extra, extra early. So here, they see Job. He was a righteous man and he's suffering. Uh-oh, Job is righteous and suffering. I'm righteous. I'm going to suffer too. Job, you must have sinned. Admit it, Job. Admit it. Please admit it. Because if you do, then I can know that I will be safe from my suffering. You get it? They're scared because they're clinging to something earthly. My health, my family, my influence, my ministry. And God, please don't take that away. It must have been something he did wrong. And I won't do anything wrong so that you guarantee to me that you won't do that to me. As if we can control God. But we can't. We can't. He will not be tamed. He will not be controlled by you, by me, by a congregational vote. He will not be tamed. And that is scary when you clutch earthly things. But if you could loosen your grip, even just a little, doesn't mean it won't be painless, but you won't lose your faith when you lose your health. You won't lose God when you lose your family. And if you have God, you have everything you need. I'm not saying we don't need family. I got five kids and this would be a nightmare for me. But if you cling on to your kids or your family or your health or ministry or anything, your job influence too tightly, God does not guarantee that you'll hold on to it. Actually guarantees that the Lord gives, the Lord will take away. Naked you came into the world, naked you'll what? So actually you're guaranteed to lose it. So you better hold on to it with a loose hand. If not, then you won't be prepared to suffer. So examine your heart. What are you clinging to so tightly in this earth that you're scared of? Fear comes from idolatry of earthly things. Figure it out. And get ready to suffer by holding on to it loosely and holding on to God tightly. Don't hold on to church. Don't hold on to ministry. Don't hold on to your friends, your health. Tightly. Hold on to God tightly and let everything else be taken. And if you have God, you have enough. Okay, last one. Number five. And closing. What does Job want between him and God? An advocate. And what do we have in First John chapter 1? Let me read it to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just too. Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, I don't have any sin, we make God a liar. His truth is not in us. My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And here's his name. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation. He died on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So that anyone who repents and trusts in him can be forgiven and saved. And have an advocate with God. So God will not take away your suffering necessarily in this world. But he has given you an advocate. Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Remember in Job 25, 4, one of the friends said, who can stand right before God? Who can be righteous before God? All of us are sinners. And isn't that right? So who can stand right before God? No one except if you're in Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justification. Who can stand before God? Those who are in Christ Jesus can stand before God.
not painless, but righteous, justified with an advocate, covered with their sins over. So if you're not a Christian, I want to plead with you. Come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. So that if you'll repent from your sins and trust in him, you'll be given righteousness, right standing before God, the gift of eternal life. The Holy Spirit will live in you right now and begin to transform you and you will have a resurrected body to stand with him on the last day. And that's what Job hopes in. In Job 19, 25 to 27, look at that. Let's close with this last verse in Job. Job 19, 25 to 27 says this. Man, I'm suffering. It's innocent. I don't, I'm innocent. I don't get this. But I know that my Redeemer, what? Lives. I like that King James there. Liveth. But I know my Redeemer lives. And he will stand on the dust on the last day. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my what? What is that talking about? If my skin's going to be destroyed, but I'm going to see him in my flesh, my flesh has to be what? Resurrected. Verse 26. Even after my skin has been destroyed, I will see God in my flesh. Verse 27. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him. That's fleshly. In other words, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he's going to raise me from the dead. Because he rose from the dead. Job doesn't know that, but we know that. He rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, whatever he does in my life for these 80, 90, 50 years, 30 years of my life, however long I suffer in this world, whatever he does, this is true from Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time, Romans 8 says, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation groans. But not only the creation, we ourselves who have the first spirit or who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We will rise. And because of that, we will hope in him in suffering. The secret things belong to the Lord. We must not suffer or counsel or endure by pretending to know what we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord, our God, but, what, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow his words of his law. So when you're in pain and you're in trouble, don't rely on your own wisdom or the wisdom of the church or the wisdom of your traditions, but go to God and accept what he tells you, acknowledging what he doesn't tell you, that you might suffer and comfort others well. I'll say that rhyme one more time. And because of the cross, we could have confidence. When in pain... Don't trust your brain, but trust his aim, his pain on the cross, and the few things he's made plain. Say that one more time and we'll close. When in pain, don't trust your brain, but trust his aim, his pain, and the few things, the few things he's made plain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust you. It's scary to trust you because you can do to us what you did to Job or even worse. And yet you have an aim that we can trust. You have the pain of Christ on the cross that secures our hope and helps us to know that no matter what you do, you love us beyond measure. You gave your only son. And you've made plain that sometimes we will suffer without knowing the answer until we get to, the, to heaven or the new earth. And so we pray that we would not rely on our understanding. Help us to not lean on our own understanding, but in every way acknowledge you that you might direct our paths. Thank you for Jesus, our hope in a dark, 
cursed and painful world. We know that in the end it will be light, it will be blessed, and it will be glorious and blissful, world without end. So we pray again, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.